Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Andrew Tuck, professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. We'll be discussing his new article, Fairness, Opinions, and SPAC Reform, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Andrew, this article delves into some of the problems and perhaps some of the reforms in the world of SPACs. This new structure for mergers or arguably IPOs that really took the capital markets by storm over the last few years. You're talking about a reform to resolve some issues in the SPAC structure, a reform focused around fairness opinions in SPAC transactions. So I'd like to start first with SPACs. What is a SPAC, an SPAC? What's its status in the capital markets, either over the last few years or status today? And what are the potential investor protection problems that SPACs are raising or have been identified by scholars like yourself and others that are perhaps worthy of reform and attention? Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity as well to present about SPACs and fairness opinions. So as many of your listeners know, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. These are shell companies. That means that they don't have operating businesses. They're formed by sponsors for the purpose of raising cash in an IPO, an initial public offering, and then merging with a yet-to-be-identified private company within a defined investment window, typically 18 to 24 months. If the SPAC sponsor and the board find a private target and both sets of shareholders agree, then the companies merge. That is, the SPAC and the target, the private company, merge. The result is a public company that combines the cash of the SPAC with the business of the private operating company, the target. That's if a merger occurs. If no merger occurs within the investment window, the SPAC has to liquidate, returning its cash to shareholders, basically returning $10 per share to public shareholders. There are a couple of things to note here. In addressing your question, one is that public investors or public shareholders buy into the SPAC at $10, either at the IPO or sometime after the IPO when the SPAC will be trading on public markets at a price almost invariably above $10 due to a redemption, which I'll mention in a second. Investors have a key protection called the redemption right. That's if a merger is proposed. If a SPAC merger gets proposed within the investment window, these shareholders have the choice to either redeem their shares at $10, which means having the SPAC buy the shares back at the purchase price of $10 plus interest, or remain invested in the SPAC as it merges with the target. So there's a choice here for public shareholders that they need to make at the time the merger is proposed. Take their $10 plus interest and run, or remain invested in the SPAC and become an investor in the post-merger company. So obviously there's a clear decision for investors. They have a clear protection. And if they think the SPAC merger will represent more value to them than $10, which is the redemption value, they ought to stay invested in the SPAC. If they think the SPAC merger is going to be worth less than $10 value to them, then they ought to redeem, take their $10 and run. So it sounds like a powerful protection, but as we'll see, the value of that protection obviously depends on shareholders being fully informed about the choice that they need to make. 
The other important point to note here in response to your question is how sponsors and SPAC boards are remunerated. SPACs are formed by sponsors and their boards are appointed by sponsors for nominal consideration. So for little money, SPAC sponsors and often board members get a significant stake in the SPAC. So sponsors get about 20% of the shares of the SPAC. So while public shareholders are paying $10 or more per share for their stake in the SPAC, sponsors are paying just a few cents per share and SPAC directors are being remunerated in a similar way. And so we need to think about the incentives that this structure can create. If no SPAC merger occurs, the remuneration is worthless and the sponsors are left covering the transaction expenses. So there are two important consequences that flow from this. One is that the interests of the SPAC sponsor and the board may diverge from those of public shareholders. So it's clear that all parties here, the public shareholders and the SPAC sponsor and the SPAC board, want the best SPAC merger possible because the best merger possible advantages all of them to the maximum extent possible. But for SPAC sponsors and boards, even a bad SPAC merger is going to be preferable to no SPAC merger at all, in which case they receive no compensation and can be left carrying the can for expenses. So there's reason to be sceptical here about the incentives of SPAC sponsors and boards, both of which are fiduciaries to the public shareholders. They'd rather the SPAC merge than not merge, and they also would have incentives to promote poor deals and even to discourage redemptions. The reason they may have incentives to discourage redemptions, to discourage public shareholders from exercising their redemption rights, is that high redemptions deplete the cash available for a deal, and they may jeopardize the viability of a deal. So many deals are contingent on effectively low redemption rates or redemption rates not being too high. So sponsors and boards may also have incentives to encourage public shareholders not to exercise their redemption rights. So the first consequence of remuneration is conflicts of interest. One other consequence of this remuneration structure is what's called dilution. And so the point here is that the remuneration structure results in the interests of public shareholders being significantly diluted. So the remuneration paid to sponsors is the primary reason, but there are also cash disbursements to deal advisors. So there's a pot of cash. SPAC public shareholders have contributed $10 a share, but there are various features that diminish the value of the cash and actually also how that cash needs to be split. It needs to be split among sponsors and directors who contribute little cash to the pool. In other words, the cash is being contributed mainly by public shareholders paying $10, but at the time of the merger, the pool also needs to be split among the sponsor, board members who don't contribute much, and the pool is depleted by deal advisor expenses. So historically, according to a seminal study by Michael Klausner, Michael Olroggi, and Emily Ruan, the SPAC shares at the time of the merger then were significantly less than $10 per share, probably closer to half that amount on a cash basis. So there's significant dilution. So just to sum up, what are the major problems here from an investor protection perspective? We're concerned about the public shareholders. They have a key protection, the redemption right, but to exercise that redemption, they need to be well-informed. Those striking deals, the SPAC mergers, provide them with information, but they have conflicted incentives. We have reason to question the viability of any deals that can be struck, given the magnitude of the dilution here. 
SPACs are coming to the merger table offering stock as consideration that on a net cash basis is going to be worth considerably less than $10 per share, which should give public investors, public shareholders pause as to whether any resulting deal can be worth more to them than their $10 redemption. Especially in 2020 and 2021, SPAC mergers became regarded as a mainstream technique for taking companies public. Market activities subsided significantly since then. There are a dearth of SPAC mergers, but there are also a dearth of traditional IPOs. There remains significant interest in SPAC mergers. That's because there's significant interest in alternatives to traditional IPOs. There's an avalanche of litigation. So these issues are still very much alive, even though the market at the moment is far from alive. I'd like to talk about some of the reforms that have been offered or that have been implemented around some of the problems around investor protection that you talk about. Are there any reforms in the works or are there any reforms that have been put in place? Are these a matter of affirmative external regulation or private ordering? Tell us about what's happened on the reform front. There are a whole host of reforms, both proposed by the SEC last year in March and effectively imposed by recent decisions of the Delaware Court of Chancery. There are two strands to the emerging regulatory framework. Under the first strand, SPAC mergers need to be fair to public shareholders in recognition of the conflicted position of the SPAC sponsor and board, and due to the fact of dilution that public shareholders experience. Due to the conflicted nature of a SPAC merger, because the sponsor, which is effectively a controlling shareholder, and the board, which are fiduciaries, are in positions of conflict, Delaware courts are reviewing these transactions under the entire fairness standard, requiring fairness to public shareholders. And in its proposed reforms, the SEC would require SPACs to state whether they consider a SPAC merger to be fair or unfair to public shareholders. It's going to be an affirmative declaration required, at least under the proposed reforms. So effectively, we have a requirement for fairness to public shareholders. It's not dissimilar to the requirement that's imposed in going private transactions, actually, which are heavily conflicted transactions. Going private transactions include management buyouts. The second strand of the emerging regulatory framework aims to align the regulation of SPAC mergers with that for traditional IPOs. This has required enhanced disclosure for public investors at the time they make their redemption decisions and heightened potential liability for those who provide public investors with information. Both the SEC and Court of Chancery have emphasized full and accurate disclosures to public shareholders in their reforms and their decisions, given the importance of this redemption right that public shareholders have. These two strands are obviously intertwined, since for a deal to be fair to public shareholders, these shareholders also need to be fully and accurately informed. One of the potential reforms in this area is fairness opinions, which is the second world or practice I hope that you might introduce listeners to. Could you tell us just what is a fairness opinion? What does fairness even mean and whose opinion is it? What's the role of fairness opinion and what I might refer to as a traditional merger where we have a company, the company is owned by shareholders, it's managed by its officers and directors, it receives an offer to be acquired by somebody else, and then the question is the offer a fair one. What is a fairness opinion in that process and why would I, as the company, the target that might sell itself, why would I need to get one? I think the starting point here is that Given these concerns about fiduciary conduct and public shareholders, regulators and parties themselves have begun looking 
to tools used in other sorts of corporate transactions. And as you mentioned, quite rightly, SPAC mergers are a type of merger. They obviously involve a merger between a public and a private company, but they're in structure very similar to types of public mergers. In other words, stock for stock public mergers, where the consideration paid by the acquirer is stock. SPAC mergers are just a type of merger, even though from the target company's perspective, they're also the functional equivalent of a traditional IPO. As your listeners know, mergers get negotiated by directors and generally need to be approved by their shareholders. As fiduciaries, directors need to be careful about the deals that they strike and they need to ensure that shareholders are fully and accurately informed. And to satisfy their duties, fiduciaries often rely on third parties for information and advice and a standard but not a mandated practice in public mergers is for selling companies to get opinions from financial advisors as you note. And so financial advice, typically investment banks, and these opinions attest to the fairness of the transaction consideration being paid. So this is a fairness opinion, an opinion by a third party, a financial advisor, also known as an investment bank, that attests to the fairness of the transaction consideration being paid. I'll say a little more about the concept of fairness, but so far we've just focused on sell-side opinions. The seller routinely gets an opinion that attests to whether the transaction consideration being paid by the buyer is fair. The recipients of that consideration, who are the selling shareholders? Buyers also often get fairness opinions from financial advisors, attesting to the fairness of the transaction consideration being paid. But for the buy side opinion, the financial advisor is obviously going to opine whether the transaction consideration is fair to the buyer, which pays the consideration. So the perspective is different, fair to the buyer as opposed to fair to the recipients of the consideration, the selling shareholders. Directors typically get fairness opinions to help satisfy their fiduciary duties, even though, as I mentioned, there's no express requirement. What are these opinions? When we refer to fairness opinions, I think we refer to two things collectively. First, we mean a letter itself, a written letter by the financial advisor, typically a few pages long, written to the board. In other words, the board of the client company, either the buyer or the seller, ending with a statement that the transaction consideration is fair from a financial point of view, either to the party paying the consideration or to the parties receiving the consideration. We also have in mind, when we say fairness opinion, supporting analyses that the financial advisor discloses to the board at a meeting that it does not disclose in the letter itself. So that financial analysis is included in the proxy statement which is the information booklet a board sends to shareholders at the time they need to vote on the merger. So financial fairness opinion comprises the statement of opinion as well as the financial advisor's supporting analysis explaining how it arrived at the conclusion of fairness. And we need to understand, I think, what one final point, and that's this concept of fairness. What does it mean and how do financial advisors determine whether transaction consideration is fair or not. What they do is a comparison. And so they compare two items to determine fairness. First, they need to determine the transaction consideration. How do they calculate that from the buyer's perspective or really the seller's? What's the transaction consideration? If we take the SPAC, for example, what's being paid? The number of shares being paid to the target multiplied by the value of those shares is going to give the transaction consideration. The second item of information is the target value itself, because the question is going to be, 
what value is being received in return for the transaction consideration. That requires an estimation of the value of the target. That requires a financial advisor to estimate, to use various methodologies. So most commonly discounted cash flow analysis and also analyses that are based on comparisons with similar companies and with similar transactions to arrive at an estimated value or really a range of values of the target company. And so the financial advisor with these two items of information is going to make a comparison. What's the consideration being paid? What's the value being given in return? In other words, what's the value of the target? But this is for a typical stock for stock public M&A deal. But from the buyer's perspective, the transaction consideration will be fair from a financial point of view if the value of the target is at least as high as the transaction consideration. So just to tie this back to the SPAC context then, we can appreciate regulatory concern in that context about the treatment of public shareholders by their fiduciaries whose incentives are compromised. So when Delaware courts began focusing on fairness to public shareholders, and when the SEC proposed requiring SPAC boards to state whether they think the deal is fair or unfair to public shareholders, the obvious resort for SPAC boards was to turn to financial advisors for fairness opinions in order to help satisfy their fiduciary duties and other obligations. In the immediate wake of the Delaware court decisions and the SEC's proposal, the top advisors in the country on SPACs have been suggesting that SPAC boards seriously consider getting fairness opinions, and by and large, they began doing so. Ever since the SEC's proposed reforms, in fact, most SPAC mergers include fairness opinions. So SPACs, the buyers, have obtained fairness opinions in order to respond to regulators' concerns. That's how fairness opinions work in the traditional M&A world. Could you walk us through just how they fit into the DSTAC process today? It's a, a reform that has been generated by litigation in Delaware. What shape does a fairness opinion take in the DSPAC context? And is that different from a fairness opinion in what I might call a traditional merger? Okay, thanks, Andrew. So the process itself is much the same for any other stock-for-stock public M&A deal. The SPAC board here is particularly concerned about fiduciary breach. It engages a financial advisor when a SPAC merger is proposed. That financial advisor delivers both a written opinion and also provides supporting analyses to the board, which the board includes in its proxy statement, together with a copy of the written opinion that gets sent to public shareholders at the time they need to vote to decide whether to approve the merger and whether to redeem their shares. So the process itself in the SPAC context is very familiar to those such as yourself with experience in the public M&A process. Now, in this paper, you note that introducing fairness opinions to the DSPAC process is not a panacea. Can you talk about the practices you see that have emerged around fairness opinions in DSPACs and why there might be some problems still in their use or their implementation in the DSPAC process? Yes. As what I do is study all SPAC fairness opinions over the past four years, and that study reveals significant problems in the opinion-giving practices of financial advisors, which ultimately, I should say, reflect on SPACs and SPAC boards and sponsors. So to begin with, let me just say that there's often skepticism about fairness opinions. I think people naturally are skeptical about what investment banks will say when they're being paid to express an opinion. The empirical evidence, however, shows that sell-side opinions do have informational content. 
On the buy side, the evidence is a little more mixed. There's both evidence in favor and against the notion that buy side opinions have informational content. We do know that in conflicted transactions, such as SPAC mergers, Delaware courts intensively scrutinize fairness opinions. They study them closely, determining whether in a given situation they ought to carry weight, and they can carry weight. And so I think there's reason to take fairness opinions seriously because courts do. They're also expensive and they're not mandated. In my study, I find that mean and median cost of a fairness opinion, a SPAC merger to be in the order of $500,000. And we know that many of the SPAC boards being advised by top law firms in the SPAC space are getting fairness opinions. So the upshot of the research is that a low quality market emerged for SPAC fairness opinions. Over the four year period that I studied from 2019 to 2023, only a single major investment bank provided a fairness opinion, even though these banks performed other roles, often multiple other roles in scores of these transactions. SPAC boards obtained fairness opinions generally from less reputationally sensitive financial advisors, which opinions failed to address the position of public shareholders. These opinions were unresponsive to fiduciary concerns and they relied on assumptions that often yielded implausible valuations. These opinions and their supporting analyses were clearly nevertheless disclosed to public investors as these investors decided whether to exercise their redemption rights. So in a nutshell, by and large, these opinions missed the point. I'm going to say a little bit about those opinions that didn't quite miss the point. But by and large, these opinions missed the point, and yet they were disclosed to shareholders together with supporting analyses in an apparent attempt to influence the decisions of shareholders when they exercise or chose whether to exercise their redemption rights. So the study does two things. So first, it examines the conceptual and practical problems with getting fairness opinions in the SPAC setting. There are reasons to be skeptical about the SPAC setting in the first place. There are reasons why we should think differently, actually, about the SPAC setting to the public M&A setting. Second, remember that a fairness opinion needs to compare the transaction consideration with the value of the target. So what's the transaction consideration in a SPAC merger? There's going to be no reliable market measure of transaction consideration. And that's because the SPAC is going to trade at $10 or above due to the availability of the redemption right even after a SPAC merger has been proposed, whatever the market thinks of the merits of the SPAC merger, the price of the SPAC will trade above $10. So at the time the merger is proposed, when transaction consideration is going to be needed, going to be calculated for purpose of the fairness opinion, there's no reliable market guide. And so what parties have been doing is assuming a $10 value for SPACs. We actually know that this is a conservative assumption It's clearly an inflated figure. On a cash basis, the SPAC is not giving consideration worth $10 per share. We know that evidence suggests that certainly for some periods, the SPAC shares were worth about half that on a cash basis. So assuming $10 is an inflated figure, it's a conservative valuation assumption given the extent of dilution. It produces an exaggerated transaction consideration and it ought to make it harder to consider transaction consideration fair in comparison with estimates of the target's value. So to be clear, this is an assumption that market participants make, that if financial advisors also make, they're going to be making it extremely hard for themselves to consider the transaction consideration to be fair relative to the value of the target. One thing I do in the paper is to show that as conservative as this assumption is, it actually doesn't offer assurance 
of fairness to public shareholders. So even if a financial advisor adopts the conservative assumption and has such an optimistic view of the target's value that this transaction consideration is fair relative to the target's value, it does not follow that the SPAC merger is worth $10 per share to the public shareholders. The underlying notion here is that even if the target is worth $10 per share, so even if we think that this inflated figure is accurate, that the target is actually worth $10 per SPAC share, combining it with a SPAC worth less than $10 per share may result in a post-merger company worth less than $10 per share. So this reasoning undermines any argument that the use of this conservative valuation assumption, which is going to overstate consideration, necessarily provides comfort to public shareholders. Okay, so that's the first part of the analysis, conceptual and practical reasons for caution. I'm not saying it's impossible for a fairness opinion to get at the issues that matter to public shareholders. It's clearly possible, but there are reasons why the public M&A template won't work for SPAC mergers. The second part of the study then turns to the opinions themselves. And the first observation is that virtually all of the opinions by a large number of very small financial advisors, not the sort of financial advisors that provide opinions in public M&A deals, even though many SPAC mergers are valued in the billions of dollars or the tens of billions of dollars, and major investment banks and financial advisors have other roles in the transactions. They act as M&A advisors, they act as IPO underwriters for SPACs, they act as placement agents, but by and large, they have not acted as financial advisors giving fairness opinions. So the second observation then is what these opinions say, they ought to address fairness to public shareholders. That's what Delaware courts focus on. It's what the SEC is focusing on. It's the obvious concern for fiduciaries. But these opinions, by and large, majority of them don't do. Rather, they simply replicate the public M&A playbook. They address fairness to the SPAC itself. But as we know, it's not the SPAC board's proper concern. Its proper concern is fairness to public shareholders. So even if a deal is good or fair to the SPAC as an entity, it might well be bad or unfair for public shareholders. The deal may be worth less than $10, so they may be better off exercising their redemption rights, given the extent of dilution. So addressing fairness to the SPAC itself is beside the point, but that's what most fairness opinions in SPAC mergers have done. The third observation is that Financial advisors generally assumed a value of $10 per share for the SPAC. This obviously inflated the value of the transaction consideration. It would lead targets to want to inflate their values in negotiations. That makes sense because if I'm a target and I'm being offered consideration and being told, let's assume it's worth $10, when on a cash basis, I have reason to think it's worth significantly less than that. In response, I will inflate my value so that ultimately I get the value that I think the target is worth. Financial advisors have nevertheless regarded these inflated transaction considerations as fair. And the reason they're able to do that is that they took particularly optimistic views of the values of the target. So these opinions appear dubious, obviously, since they suggest that financial advisors value targets more highly than targets own managers did. That's the third observation. The fourth observation, I think, is that Some opinions do in fact purport to address fairness to public shareholders. So there are some financial advisors, obviously some SPAC boards that are alert to the fact that what matters is fairness to public shareholders. And so they got opinions that conclude that the transaction consideration offered in the SPAC merger is fair to 
public shareholders. Not fair to the SPAC, but fair to public shareholders. So this ought to be welcome news. But when one studies these opinions and focuses on the supporting financial analyses, with one exception, all of them are baseless. They purport to address fairness to public shareholders, but the analysis fails to do that. They follow the public M&A playbook, focusing only on the SPAC, failing to adjust for dilution, failing to, to consider the distinct position of public shareholders. So the one exception here, among all these opinions, is the only opinion given by a major investment bank. This is the outlier among the dozens of opinions given over the past four years in SPAC mergers. It was given by Barclays in the $20 billion Polestar SPAC merger. That opinion gives some basis for public shareholders to think that the D-SPAC was worth more than $10 per share to them. And remember, that's the test. The choice public shareholders have is take their $10 and run by exercising their redemption right or remain invested in the SPAC and become an investor in the post-merger company. Finally then, there are a final set of opinions that simply reflect poor practices. They draw either clearly mistaken conclusions or their conclusions are simply ambiguous. So that's the study in a nutshell, Andrew. Your study has identified some of the deficiencies of fairness opinions in the DSPAC context, the problems with running the traditional M&A playbook in the DSPAC context. I wonder what the implications there are. How should, in your view, how should fairness opinions be done in DSPACs? What reforms might be needed to get there and where should those reforms come from, whether it's regulatory, judicial, or private ordering? First, I think primary implication is what should financial advisors be doing? They need to assess whether a DSPAC represents value to public shareholders of at least $10. This requires an assessment of the value of the post-merger entity, the SPAC plus the target. It's a pro forma assessment accounting for the effects of dilution. Second question is, will reputable financial advisors be willing to give such an opinion? I think they have strong incentives to do under the existing framework. Will they be willing to give such an opinion? Or rather, I should say, I think SPAC boards have strong incentives to seek SPAC fairness opinions under the existing framework. But the question is, will reputable financial advisors be willing to give these opinions that attest the fairness to public shareholders? That's questionable. And this is not a criticism of the emerging regulatory framework. I think the reason reputable financial advisors have not given these opinions and the reason even other financial advisors have also generally not given these opinions, is that the magnitude of dilution makes it extremely difficult to conclude that SPAC mergers are fair to public shareholders, to actually state that with a straight face, they're fair to public shareholders. So upshot here is that I think terms of SPAC mergers are going to need to change. They'll need to adjust Dilution, in other words, the extent of remuneration for sponsors and perhaps even directors, is going to need to shift. It's going to need to be reduced so that SPAC mergers are much more likely to be fair to public shareholders, making it more plausible for financial advisors, reputable financial advisors, to give these opinions. So, unless deal terms change, unless sponsor compensation dramatically reduces, it's going to be tough for financial advisors to give these opinions. And these opinions are difficult to give anyway because they're going to be highly contingent, but they should at least be willing to give relevant financial analyses if the terms of SPAC mergers change sufficiently. Final implication, I think, is what information do public shareholders need at the time they decide whether to exercise their redemption rights? There's a big debate about this. How do we ensure that these shareholders are fully and accurately informed 
so that they're best positioned to exercise their redemption rights when they ought to. Obviously, we can't make them protect their own interests, but we ought to at least ensure that they're accurately and fully informed. So the key here, I think, and I argue in the paper, is that from the standpoint of public shareholders, what matters is the value per share of the post-merger entity. It's the shares in this entity that public shareholders are going to receive if they choose not to redeem. So the net cash per share, which is an alternative measure that reflects the extent of dilution, the net cash per share what the SPAC merger is worth, SPAC itself is worth on a cash basis. That's going to be a helpful measure, but I think it's an indirect measure. It doesn't really get at the point as accurately as the post-merger value of the combined entity. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper? I think it's worth briefly considering why SPAC boards and their advisors have been getting opinions that courts and regulators are unlikely to credit. One possible explanation for board's conduct is that they did not fully understand the limitations of the opinions that they received. I think it's more likely, though, that financial advisors were simply unwilling to deviate from the standard fairness opinion template or were unable plausibly to conclude that a DSPAC was fair to public shareholders. So they either refused to give opinions at all, in the case of the most reputable firms, or they gave opinions that entirely missed the point, in the case of many other firms, or they gave opinions unsupported by analyses, in the case of another set of firms. So ultimately, the results reflect on SPAC, sponsors, boards, and their fiduciaries. And many of these issues, I think, are going to play out in the avalanche of litigation that's now before the courts. Let me conclude with just one final takeaway, and I think that's that fairness opinions and their underlying analyses have provided no assurance as to the fairness of SPAC mergers to public shareholders. The evidence here, it corroborates concerns expressed by legal scholars about the incentives of financial advisors, and it aligns with a particular body of empirical research examining the role of investment bank quality, which finds that there are poorer outcomes for lower tier investment banks or financial advisors. Our guest today has been Andrew Tuck, professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. We've discussed his article, Fairness Opinions and SPAC Reform, which is forthcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.